This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Raising a child who struggles with mental health issues or addictions or depression or suicidal thoughts or eating disorders or just the normal angst that's associated with growing up can be frightening and overwhelming. Every day, you face heartbreaking decisions. To truly support your child, you've got to be right there with them, hurting with them and acknowledging them. But you also need to model independence. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a therapist and a parent educator who has helped thousands of families replace their anxiety and confusion with clarity and insight and empowerment. He's a guy who uses his extensive experience as a wilderness therapist where modern conveniences and distractions are stripped away to provide a way for parents and kids to affect positive change in their own behavior. Some of the lessons we're going to learn are simple and straight to the point, like giving your child the space to feel and express his own emotions, recognizing that you don't have to get everything perfectly right as a parent, and breaking free from guilt in order to set healthy boundaries. And perhaps most importantly, how to avoid threatening or intimidating your child into doing the right thing, which isn't going to happen anyway. I'm Armin Brunt. We'll jump into all this and a lot more when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brunt, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday. I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to CasaFamilyDay.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Brad Reedy, who's the author of The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home. Brad, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, have you set the stage for us a little bit. What's heroic about this particular type of parent, and what's the child's struggle? Yeah. I think that the title, sometimes people might misunderstand it, because the idea of heroic parenting, I, I borrowed it from Joseph Campbell, the philosopher's idea of the hero's journey. And, and the hero, in, in every story, in every epic, every myth, as Joseph describes, is really goes on, a gen, on, on an inward journey, looking at himself or herself and finding a deeper, more authentic version of themselves. And, and they usually go through something difficult, something painful, something that tries and stretches and, and transforms them. So for me, the idea of a heroic parent is somebody who does the hard work of asking themselves difficult questions, learning how to feel, 
learning how to walk into at times therapy sessions or into programs, into meetings, and really expose themselves to a, a real vulnerable and ultimately a courageous process. And the, the journey that's going on is dealing with a child with mental illness. Yeah. You know, that, that's where my stories come from. That's my background. But, but really, since I identify that the most important question that, that you ask yourself when you're dealing with a tr- child who's struggling with mental health or addictions is not, what do I do with this child? That, that's the question that parents come to me with. But the real question is, who am I? You know, what's my authentic self? And then from there, I can get more clear on my child, and I can get more clear on my relationship with them and my relationship with their problems. So although the background and the context is dealing with children who are struggling, it really does have application to all of our relationships. And the parents who I work with who really get a lot out of it and really embrace it will come back to me and say, it's changed my work relationship, my, my relationship with my parents, my friend, my peer, my partner relationship. So it's really you know, the, the key to, to doing this heroic journey, to embarking on this heroic journey is self-discovery, and that has application to all of our relationships. Well, how do you begin that process? Usually you're shoved into it in, in the case that I, I work with because a child is struggling, and a lot of people won't do this kind of work unless it's required of them, unless they think they're going, in, in this case, to go after to save their child. So a lot of times it comes comes to us in a crisis. Most of our growing, most of my growing, I know, has come when I've been when something difficult has happened. So there's this invitation into a, to a deeper process because we're not cruising along anymore. And then we learn to ask ourselves, we learn to allow ourselves to be asked different questions. And that can be by a mentor, by a therapist, if you have a trusted friend who's farther along down the journey. So walking into a therapy session, walking into an Al-Anon meeting, walking into an AA meeting with your child or, or, or for your child to learn about your child, reading a book, um, you know, attending seminars. We, we go to places that we wouldn't normally want to go, that we would never imagine ourselves signing up for, but we do it because we think we're out there to save our child. And, of course, in the end, we end up saving ourselves. And that transformation can have a wonderful impact on our children. Well, I'm curious about how the process goes a little bit. I mean, what sorts of things? Of course, we're not going to go through an entire therapy session, right. probably. But how do you begin to help get parents on the path where they can discover what the issues are for themselves? You know, for me, I run a, a therapeutic wilderness program set out in the outdoors, kind of like an outward bound with therapy. Ours is called Evoke Therapy Programs. And so the way that it looks like for me is I have a child in the program who's been admitted because of drug issues or mental health issues. And then I'm on the phone with the parent and they say, now, what do we do? What do I say to him this week? What do I say to her this week? Where do we go next? So it always comes up in the context of them saying, what's the next thing to do? What, what, what should I write? Should I write a confrontive letter? Should I write a loving letter? And so my process with them is saying, it's never about what to do. It's about why you're doing it. So I say, so why do you want to write this really soft letter to your child? Are you apologizing? Is there guilt there? Is there something in your childhood that's not resolved where you're still resentful unconsciously of your parents? And so you're trying to resolve that through your child. Are you over-identifying with your child in this case where you're trying to take care of their feelings and be responsible for their feelings? Are you trying to control their feelings and manage it? So it, it comes in the context of, of a dialogue with me as a therapist where people are asking what to do in a given situation. And instead of me giving advice, which I almost never try to do, I'll say, well, what do you want to, what do you want to, what are you trying to accomplish? And what's getting in the way of you finding out your truth? Because I believe the truth is in there. It's just being blocked by shame and fear and guilt in, in our efforts to control things. And so it's my job to ask the kind of questions like, where's it coming? Why do you want to ch- tell your child how you're feeling? Are you trying to get them to feel guilty? Mm-hmm. Do you want to get them to feel obligated to you? 
um, let's talk about that. And so it's always about asking the parent in this case questions about where it's coming from, what's right. the history, and really unpacking it. So how often do you have people say, oh, for God's sake, just, <laughs> you know, just tell me what to say? Five times an hour on a given phone call or a given <laughs> session, at least. Okay, okay. And so I want to make sure that I'm not the only one who's who's kind of thinking that a little bit as you're talking. Right. I, I understand where you're going, but I mean, I can see that there's there's got to be some frustration. I mean, yeah. if you have a child with mental illness who's to the point where they've been admitted to some sort of a program, right. I, you know, you, you just it's enough already. You you, you want to just move on and and fix it. You know, and I, I think that one of the that's true, and people do get frustrated with the process sometimes, and I'm very gentle with the process because although they're not my primary client, the child is, they're a child too. You know, they come with their history, their unique history, which has, has formed their personality. So I'm, I'm really patient with them, and as a father for myself, I know how hard it is, I know how hard it is every day to do the right thing. So I'm, I'm really patient and loving with them and, and really understanding that anything that, that blocks them is a wound, and so it's, it's, it's a very gentle process yeah. with me them for sure I would imagine that some of the resistance it maybe comes from some kind of an intuitive knowledge that they may or that that they may have done something to cause the problems yeah they, they come often with that idea that that sense of guilt or obligation and sometimes it's something like a divorce right it could be or a father who knows he's been putting his job first and in, in, in front of his family in a lot of ways or a mother who nags or a father who yells. So there's a lot of that, that either chronic or acute you know, behavior in a parent that they acknowledge. And so I definitely try to take away the guilt and say, there, there have been things that you've done to hurt your child and that have affected your child. And that's true of every single parent. And we're not going to dwell on that. We're going to work on doing the best you can. And the best thing that you can do with your child is not to apologize and, and, and fear to hold them accountable because you've hurt them but to do your own work. That's what your child needs is for you to make your life and your growth a project, not their life and their growth a project, but your life and your growth a project. Now, you talk about don't trust experts, become one yourself. Right. Experts in what? I'm not an expert. I'm a therapist. I'm a marriage and family therapist, but I'm not an expert on your life. You know, I mean, I can't tell you what to do. And most of the stuff that I've learned in my life that's valuable has been from my mistakes anyway, so I wouldn't want to rob anybody of that journey. So what I say is that therapists are not experts in telling you the truth. They're experts in creating a process where you can find, find the truth, find your truth that's buried beneath guilt and fear primarily. So you can help somebody understand what's blocking their wisdom, what's blocking access to that insight that is, is healing for them and for their family. The average layperson might imagine that a therapist's job or expertise is giving advice, and, and that's certainly not true. I, mean, I remember as, as a kid going to therapy for various kinds of things that my parents were sending me, and I, I developed this attitude somehow that therapists should be like mechanics. Right. You know, you, you back your car in, you pop open the hood and say it's making this funny noise, fix it. You know, but that's obviously an, an unrealistic thing since the right. fixing has to be done by the person who's there. Yeah. But you can get a lot out of therapy with a very average therapist if you're doing your work and most of the work happens between sessions that that therapy becomes that session becomes the anchor kind of the right angle that you can true yourself up to because you go in there to find yourself ideally if you have a decent therapist but as i've learned in my life and i've been to therapy most of my life the most important work that happens is the stuff that happens right when i walk out of her office and before i come in the next time 
You know, just curious about the whole process with with this. Do you suggest that people take notes and that they review the notes? Because I think so many people, you go to therapy, you come out, and that's it. You you just come back next week. But you don't really have homework assignments. Right, right. You know, this is going to be very similar to my session. I I don't have an opinion on whether they should take notes. It doesn't work for me to take notes. I've had people take notes. I think some people learn that way and retain information that way. So if they want to do that, that's fine. But for me, it, you know, it takes a while, to, especially in therapy, to, to experience what therapy is, which is a, it's a vulnerable process where you walk in, and it takes time for all of us, myself included, to expose yourself enough to be seen. And then you have this reparative experience where you're seen and heard and cared for and not judged, and that's different than most of our childhoods. And so we have this reparative experience where we're just okay. My therapist says, your horrible, rotten self is okay and, and welcome here. I'm talking with Brad Reedy, who's the author of The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Brad. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So, um... We don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Looking for the best all-you-can-eat buffet for only $1.99? Come to Big Ed's Chow House. But if you're looking for Big Ed, don't come to Big Ed's Chow House. Big Ed passed away last week at 47, leaving his wife and children struck down in his prime by the same disease that got his father, so he won't be around for his family. And sadly, it could have been detected early with a simple test, but Big Ed didn't get it. Have you gotten the medical test you need? For a list of tests every man should have, go to ahrq.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Brad Reedy, who's the author of The Journey of the Heroic Parent, Your Child's Struggle, and the Road Home. So I want to go on a little bit, and you know, this is going to be some—we'll have to just sort of take your word on this, that you know, once you're able to get the parents to the point where they can understand themselves a little bit better, then there still is some work or some interactions that need to be done with them and the child. How do you begin to— assess what that is you know one thing that we have to our advantage is uh, it's actually wonderful and it wasn't created intentionally but in our program the parents and the children write letters to each other and that's an amazing ver- version of family therapy because you could really slow it down 
So I'll go over a letter with a parent, and, and I can see in it. I can, that's my job. I can see what they're trying to suggest or what they're, what they're trying to express. Or if I can't, I'll ask questions about it and say, Why, what, what, what's this in here and what are you trying to say here? And then I coach them through a different way of responding. And that's, it's, uh, letter writing therapy is so much more deliberate than talking therapy because you're, it's, it's happening so quickly in real time. You say to a client, hey, what you just said there, and they'll say, well, I didn't mean that. But in, on paper, you can really take your time. And most of what I'm also coaching parents to do is to listen, to, to hear their children, and then to hold boundaries in the face of their own fears of being rejected themselves or their child hating them or not liking them or not forgiving them, and then let that do the teaching because most parents want to lecture, nag, threaten, coerce. They want to do all that stuff to change, change their child instead of setting boundaries and understanding their child simultaneously. Now let's talk a little bit about control versus influence. I think that that's one of the chapters in the book, and I think right. it's something that a lot of parents struggle with, that how, how little control we have and except when they're tiny. Right. And how how much influence we have, which is a, a disappearing amount, I think, over time. But how do you get parents to understand that? Because that's that's a critical message that we need to get. There, there's a few principles that I teach them. One thing I say is, parenting education is not for changing children, but for changing parents. And that change can then have a wonderful effect on children. And, and most of our control comes from fear, and most of it comes through emotional coercion. So what I teach parents is. You can listen better. You can be more assertive. You can be more authentic. You can uh, lose your temper a little less. We can talk about all of that. But ultimately, you have to let go of the outcome to be effective, to be influential. And I'll tell you this. I also teach that most permissive parents are controlling. Most permissive parents who have problems with boundaries are trying to coerce. They're trying to guilt. They're trying to nag. They're trying to pester, blame, intimidate, lecture, debate, all those things to get their child to do something instead of saying, here's the boundary. I'm scared that you're not going to do what I want you to do, what, what I think you need to do, but I'm going to be clear about this thing that is me. I'm going to do my thing over here. I'm going to be as clear as I can, and then you get to choose, and then I have to do the, one of the scariest things in the whole process, which is follow through with the consequences. So we kind of help parents along each of those steps so that they're focusing always on their part of the process and letting go of the child's outcome and definitely not trying to use emotional intensity and coercion to try to get their child to do do things, which, like I said, most permissive parents do try to do. What's the, the hardest part for you of this process? I think at times uh, my own control gets triggered. I think at times, I mean, all of my own stuff gets into it all the time. All of my own, my own want for things to go the right way, especially when I'm seeing a, a, ch a young child, you know, a teenager or a young adult suffering, and I see a parent struggling to parent effectively, and I'll get frustrated with them. And I think for me, that impatience it's really just judgment. You know, I have, I have complicated language to, to use to, to hide the derision and judgment, but that's when I know I'm off course. And when I do supervision with all of our therapists, I'll say to them, almost every time when they're stuck on a case, it's almost always about a parent getting in the way, quote-unquote, with what they want to do in therapy. And so I say, if this was a child and you were treating a child, this parent that you're struggling with, how would you talk to them? What would you say to them? And so I myself get caught in that all the time, getting impatient with, 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 with the wounds and the symptoms of parents that are getting in the way of my agenda, which, again, is just replicating what's happening with the parent and the child relationship. So that's, that's probably the hardest thing that I encounter on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned at the very beginning that you're really not dealing with the parents, I mean, that they aren't your patients, that it's the kids right. themselves who are the patients. 
are you putting them through a similar kind of a process of discovering who you are and and what your motivations are? Yeah, yeah, and, and they're they're easier because they're immersed in the culture, right? They're in our program, living in it, and so it's happening all day long in every interaction. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, they're easier to deal with. The parents are dealing with day-to-day life, which, as we all know, is really, really challenging. You know, and, and I have parents that are very successful in business, and what works in business doesn't work with children, and children are there to remind you of that if you forget it. So we're definitely – I say the same thing to, to parents that I do to children, which is don't worry about them changing because children are complaining about parents as much as parents are complaining about children. My response is – and I use this language. There's this piece in the book that I talk about being an idiot. Just say, so everybody in your life is going to be an idiot, and what are you going to do about it? That's not an unempathic statement. It's just turning them back into what's your piece of it? What can you control? What's your side of the street? What's your project in life? Instead of thinking, I'm going to do this right so that I can, or do this thing so that I can change the other person. So it's a, it's a very, very parallel process for sure. Is there a particular type of, of psychological makeup that makes somebody more receptive to the kind of therapy that you're talking about? I'm talking about whether the parent or the child. You know, that's a really good question. I, I think there's got to be a little bit of a feeling of crisis. They've got to be teachable. Humility is, is probably the biggest thing. When parents say to me, I've tried all of this, my response is, well, then you should have peace and serenity because that's <laughs> the outcome of effective parenting, not well-behaved children. But people that have a hard time being vulnerable and being humble and being teachable, and, and I do want to say this one thing, part of what I want to get them all to embrace, and it's hard when you're not teachable, is you're not off track. This, this idea that being in my program is somehow dramatically off track. This is life. This is the lesson. And the people that come out the other end of, of our process talk about this being the best experience of their life, being richer for it. And so we have to get out of this mindset also to be teachable to say what's happening, what is happening is what is. You know, it, it, it's, it's radical acceptance. We've got to embrace that instead of holding on to what should be happening, which gets most people stuck most of the time. You know, I want to have you go back a little bit because you talked about it, the the need to forget about essentially the outcome, uh-huh. or forget about the yeah, forget about the outcome. But so talk about the the difficulties or the dangers of trying to be right in these things. <laughs> well, most of us that's you know that's that chapter is just about me really. I had to put it in there, but I think a lot of us instead of saying this is how I feel and this is what I want, this is what I can tolerate in my, in my home. We start trying to be right, and we start trying to debate. We, you know, I had a father ask me years ago, "Is it am I allowed to ask my young adult child who lives with me not to smoke pot?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Do you have any research articles that you can share with me that, that support that?" And I said, "Not off the top of my head, but if I gave them to you, he would come back with some counter examples from articles." And so you're never going to win. But what you can be is you. You can say, "I don't want I don't want this in my house. I don't want if I'm a married to an alcoholic. I don't want this anymore. I don't have to be right." I just get to be me, and most of us did not grow up being allowed to feel what we felt and think and, and, and be what we are without having to defend it or justify it. And so the shift is just learning to be you and learning to stand on that scary island of just being you instead of always trying to prove it. And I fall into that trap as much as anybody that I work with. Don't need, You mean not needing to prove? Yeah, I try to prove myself. I try to be right and debate and show that I, that I have the right answer. And that just isn't working. (laughs) 
my wife said, you can be right, but you're going to be alone. That, that was one of her <laughs> early statements to me when we were dating, so it resonates with me. That's, that's a great comment, I guess. Yeah. It's sort of a warning in a way. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you end the book with something, the, the message of hope. What, what would that be? The message of hope is that depression and anxiety or, or just a lack of serenity and pre- peace and confidence for parents comes when we focus on what we can control. And the message of hope, when you change your focus to what you can do and what you can do to be a, a different parent, then you'll immediately be filled with hope. You're focusing on something that's within your control. And what I know from my own life, from my own therapy, from my own challenges as an individual and, and as a parent, is that when I change, the circumstances and situations and things outside of me start to reflect that. I, I'm around people who are treating me the way that I'm treating myself and thinking about myself and so I see that you, you've got to kind of blind yourself to it like like when you're hitting a tennis ball you don't want to aim it too much to control the outcome but you've got to trust your swing but that shift from focus from outside to inside is what creates the hope and takes away the depression and anxiety Brad Reedy the author of The Journey of the Heroic Parent Your Child's Struggle and the Road Home Brad thanks for joining us is there a website people can Go to for more on this? Yeah, you can go to evoketherapy.com or drbradreedy.com. Brad, thank you. Thank you for having me. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Oh, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. As an alternative to recycling? Yeah, an alternative. So we, like, don't have to do it. Recycling. There are lots of planets. Finding one is just a matter of time. Many people say that recycling is pretty simple and convenient, a matter of keeping select items out of the trash. A lot simpler than finding a new planet, Tommy. Come on, there's a bunch of planets out there. Would you recycle on this new planet, Tommy? Or just use it up and throw it away too? I I really don't have a clue. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy. Unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. I want to jump right into today's Ask Mr. Dad question because it deals with something I think people don't talk about enough, and that's volunteering. Dear Mr. Dad, I have to admit that my wife and I have been a bit self-centered in our adult lives, focusing on our work and earning money and supporting the family. We've done quite well financially, and we both decided that we should start giving something back to our community. We want to get our kids involved, too, but they're pretty young, only five and seven. Honestly, I don't even know where to start. Are the kids too young, and what's the best way to get going? Well, let's start with this one. The kids are definitely not too young to volunteer in their community. In fact, I don't really think that there is such a thing as too young. Plenty of people bring babies to visit nursing home residents or shut-ins, and preschoolers and elementary kids often go on field trips to the same places to sing holiday songs or put on a play or just draw pictures. Bringing a smile to the face of people who don't have a lot of joy in their lives I think is a wonderful gift. Middle schoolers can volunteer to read to a blind person, tutor kids their own age in reading and math, and teens can coach inner-city sports teams or build houses with Habitat for Humanity. Ideally, volunteering is a selfless act. You do it to help someone else, not because you'll profit from it. But thinking way into the future, volunteering also looks good on college and job applications. I hate to put it in those terms, but sometimes you've got to think a little bit ahead. 
Doing things as simple as serving meals at a local homeless shelter or, when the kids are older, delivering meals on wheels shows your children that you're walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. Of course, volunteering often gives kids some insight into just how lucky they are. It can also provide opportunities for them to learn about problem solving and cooperation, for them to hone new skills and to discover talents and interests and skills they never even knew they had. Perhaps most importantly, though, it teaches them to be more tolerant of people they might never come in contact with otherwise, people from different cultures or ethnicities or education levels or socioeconomic status. At the end of the day, or just even at the end of a few hours, volunteering you'll discover that your family has benefited as much as the community has, although in very different ways. As you consider which of the millions of opportunities to get your family involved in, here are a few ideas you might want to keep in mind. Start in your own backyard. Your church or synagogue probably has a social action committee. Join it. Look inside. There's no better way to pass your values on to your children than by getting involved in an organization that works with issues that you care strongly about. If you need some suggestions, you can visit unitedway.org or volunteermatch.org. Ask the kids. Kids have big hearts, you know. Letting them pick whom or what they want to help will make them that much more committed. Think about staying home. There are plenty of ways to volunteer that don't involve actually leaving the house. Things like assembling care packages for veterans, translating documents for refugees, building websites for nonprofits, and fostering abused pets. Don't go overboard. Start slowly and increase the amount of hours you contribute as you can. Making commitments you can't keep will frustrate you and sets a bad example for the kids. And because organizations count on their volunteers, you could inadvertently hurt the people you're trying to help. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.